Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that se- separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, the day your Spirit came and indwelt your people is second only to the resurrection. I'm captivated by the boldness of our forebearers to proclaim your good news to people they did not know. You bestowed on your church in that day grace, knowledge, wisdom, power, and blessing. From that day to this one, the same Spirit guides and fills your people. So, Father, forgive us for forgetting his presence is near. And forgive us for grieving him through our sin. Instead, Father, help us to fan in the flame the gifts he's given us and the unity he promotes. Anoint Pastor Jeff with charisma to announce your good and true word to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Patrick. Good morning. You guys bring your Bible? Yeah. Ready to roll? Let's do it. Acts chapter 2, man. Thank you, Patrick, for a very lively reading. <laughs> we've, uh, we've heard a lot of chatter this last week about the need for unity and healing without sounding cynical or pessimistic. <laughs> I want to say that the world system could only ever offer superficial and temporary solutions to our disunity problem. And at worst, it offers actually a false unity where the cost for us is just too high. And what we're going to learn in the passage that we're reading and that Patrick just read and we're going to unpack today in Acts chapter 2, we're going to learn the secret to unity to Christian unity. Now, I'm going to talk a lot today about speaking in tongues. <laughs> Welcome to church. And what the meaning of that is. Folks, I for sure am not going to be able to answer every question that you have on your mind about that. However, this gift or this uh, sign will come up again as we progress into the book, and I'm going to try to answer more about it. But today, what we want to do is pour the foundation, right? We want to pour the concrete. We want to understand in Acts chapter 2, in this chapter, what is going on practically and theologically. It is so critical for us to lay this groundwork. And so here's my main thought today. This is my thesis. This is what I'm hoping to set out to persuade you with. In Acts chapter 2, we are witnessing God reunifying the human race under the saving lordship of Christ by invading their lives with his transforming presence by the Spirit. And there can be no true, no lasting, no deep, no pervasive, eternal unity apart from the saving work of Jesus. Because true, deep, and lasting unity is in the community of Christ. And that's what this chapter is about. So let's take a few minutes to unpack the passage before us. First of all, let's talk about the environment. We've got to talk about the environment. So every worship service creates an environment, right? Right now you're sitting in a gymnasium that's been converted on the weekends to a worship sanctuary. 
over the next few weeks, this room is going to become dramatically altered, right? We've already started sort of the stage uh, to put in new wiring and things like this, uh, but it's going to become dramatically altered because this room is going to become a worship sanctuary that can be used for other things. Our focus in this church, our mission in this church is to gather disciples to worship God. So environment matters. Every worship service, every place where God manifests his presence, the environment matters. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, we have passages like Exodus 3, 2 Samuel chapter 5, Job 38, Psalms 29, 97 and 104, Isaiah 29 and 66, and Ezekiel 1-4. What you will find is that portents and stormy images in Acts chapter 2 evoke our memory of these passages. Because in the Old Testament, whenever there was what is called a theophany, a theophany is uh, God revealing himself to human beings. God is revealing himself to human beings, and how does he do it? He does it through uh, material things that you and I have access to, things that we can understand. And some of the symbols that we're going to look at today, that's exactly what they are. So some of these portents and stormy images are going to evoke our memory of what God has already done deeply in the, New Te- in the Old Testament. And so the story begins as Luke sets the stage and he puts all the scenery on the stage and the set pieces. And what they're designed to do is draw our attention center stage to what God is actually doing in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So the signposts that we're going to read about today are what are called Advent signs. What is an Advent sign? Well, when we go back to Exodus chapter 19 and God revealed himself to the people in Exodus chapter 19... And he reveals himself at Sinai, right? Anybody else getting warm? It's warm up here. I think it's the lights. We're going to change the lights over the next couple of weeks to some cooler lights. But uh, in Acts chapter 19, when God reveals himself, that is a theophany. God reveals himself in all kinds of ways, but it comes with certain portents, certain signs in the heavens. And when God revealed himself, or when God came to reveal himself in the incarnation in Christ, there were certain signs that were rare and unrepeatable that attended that revelation, like angelic hosts proclaiming and singing the glory of Christ, right? Now with the Holy Spirit's advent, now that the Holy Spirit has come, there are certain unrepeatable signs that are going to attend this uh, revelation of God also. So these are Advent signs. Now you and I are not going to experience any Advent signs in the Christian life until the second coming. And in the second coming, when Christ returns, there are going to be heavenly portents and stormy images that attend that are going to remind us of these signs. When the Holy Spirit was poured out, when God revealed his Torah at, in the Old Testament, right? So, you and I still, though, can experience directional signs. A sign is nothing more than a signpost. It's there to point you in a direction. And sometimes they're retrospective. Sometimes you look back on what God has been doing and you think, no way, I see now how God was in all that. Has that happened to you? Isn't that wonderful? And those are directional signs in which God is confirming, yes, I was with you, even in those times when you thought I wasn't with you. 
So, but we're talking today not about directional signs for our personal life in Christ. We're talking about Advent signs, okay? So I want to make that distinction. So let's first talk about the feast. What do we know about the feast? Verse 1, this is when the day of Pentecost had arrived. Pentecost is the Greek word for 50. It just means the feast of 50. And that means the feast 50 days after the Passover, So 50 days, Jesus has appeared to them now periodically over a period of 40 days. And now they're on the 50th day, and that's the feast of Pentecost, which they were commanded to observe in in Leviticus 23. And so this is a feast celebrating the abundance of wheat harvest. The abundance of wheat harvest. And this would have been a celebration that would have called tens of thousands of Jews from all the surrounding areas, from all over Rome, to make a pilgrimage to come down for this feast. And it was a joyous celebration. It was a gathering, right? And so it called for a public gathering to commemorate God's abundance and grace. Thousands of visitors, families, all networks of families gathered together to celebrate what God has done and will do. And then he says they were gathered. So they were all together in one place. And this is reminiscent of Exodus 19.8, where all the people gathered on Sinai, and the people answered Moses, we will do together, they answered Moses, we will do whatever the Lord has commanded. Some of the more expansive homes in this area in Acts chapter 2 that have been excavated in this area have dining halls Uh, that could accommodate up to 200 people. And those are quite large upper rooms. So we're talking the entire church gathered here to experience what God is about to do. And then you have the symbols. The symbols. So suddenly a sound. Sound. Like that of a violent rushing wind. Now that is reminiscent of Ezekiel 37, 5 and 10. What does God do in that passage? Well, there's this violent rushing wind that comes blowing into a valley. And what does it do? It takes all these dead man's bones, and that's a symbol of Israel, the people of God. And it breathes the breath of life back into them. They are resurrected and reconstituted. So that's the image here. This sound like a violent rushing wind, like Ezekiel 37, is blowing into the world and is going to reconstitute God's holy family. And it came from heaven, and it filled the whole house uh, where they were standing, staying. So this sign of this coming wind to reanimate and reconstitute the people is reminiscent of Exodus 19.16. In that passage, at that particular theophany, when God reveals himself to humanity, the sound of God terrified the people. It was so loud and clamorous that the people recoiled from it and said, please do not speak to us like this anymore. And so God has to write his words on tablets, right? And so there was this loud sound in Exodus 19.16. And then they saw like flames of fire, tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each of them. That's reminiscent of Exodus 19.18. In Exodus 19.18, Yahweh descends in a flaming fire. In the Old Testament, that fiery manifestation communicates a couple of things about God. One, the absolute purity and holiness of God. 
And two, the fact that God's the fire, God who is the all-consuming fire is going to purify you. In order to be in his presence, you need to be pure. So this fire is most often associated with a purifying fire. And so those are the symbols, but those aren't the story. That's just the setting. Those are just the set pieces on stage. The lighting that draws our eyes center stage. So in summary, the environment of this outpouring is one of celebration. They're gathered together to celebrate God's abundance and grace. Their gathering is an act of obedience to Christ. He said to wait until the Spirit was poured out and they're waiting and they're obeying. Their environment is one of hearing and seeing where they're seeing God do great things and they're hearing things that are uh, very powerful and profound. Let's talk about the gift. All the believers received the promise of the Father sent at Christ's ascension to his heavenly throne. Uh, after Christ's ascension to his heavenly throne, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's what it says in verse 4. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So all believers now are being filled with the Spirit. So who is they referring to? Well, some have tried to say, well, they refers to the 12 apostles. And I don't think that's the case. I think it refers to the apostolic community for a couple of reasons. One, not the least of which, the number of languages that are represented on this day that are spoken supernaturally, the number of languages are probably between 16 and 18. And there's only 12 disciples, right? So somebody's got to be doing like double duty here. With some languages, I think practically that's not what's intended to be taught. In addition to that, Peter's interpretation of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is that this is for you, your progeny, their children, and everyone who is far away. So it's for everyone eventually who is far away, then it certainly would be for the 120 that we met in chapter 1, right? So there's some very practical reasons to think that the antecedent to the word they is not the 12 apostles, it's the apostolic community. And in addition to that, on the day of Pentecost, you would be gathered with every person you knew that was in your family network. And that would include your believing network. So you would, just as a matter of protocol for the feast, be all gathered together in one place. So they is everybody. And then it says they are filled with the Spirit. Now remember, John the Baptist prophesied. John the Baptist said this, he says, I baptize with water, but there's one who is coming after me who will baptize you in the spirit and what? Fire. A purifying fire so that you can be cleansed from your sins and come into the holy, fiery presence of God. And then Jesus repeats this promise in Acts 1. He says, remember, John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not long after. And so what does it mean to be baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit? There are a couple of senses in which the New Testament refers to this. The first is being filled with the Spirit is an initial experience of regeneration. It's an, it describes an initial experience of being regenerate. Acts 2.4, Paul's conversion in chapter 9, verse 17. And so initially when a person comes into the body of Christ, that can be described as being filled or deluged with the Holy Spirit or baptized in the Holy Spirit. But it can also refer, uh, being filled with the Spirit can refer to an ongoing expectation of Christian fellowship. The vast majority of times this phrase is used in the New Testament, it's in this context. 
is in the context of the ongoing, the expectation that you and I, as filled with the Spirit people, will continue to live a life in the Spirit. And so I'll put some passages down. You can get those later if you don't get them all now. But essentially, this is how Luke, in particular, most often uses this phrase. To be filled with the Spirit means to be baptized in the Spirit initially, but then also to live a life in the Spirit. To live a life being filled with the Spirit. And here's Paul's explanation of that. It's in Ephesians 5, 18 through 20. Now, he originally wrote this in Colossians 3, 16. And what he says in Colossians 3.16 is, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you do these things. So this has to do with teaching because in the ancient world they were mostly illiterate. So the way you learn doctrine is through singing. You, you learn it through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's how you learn the contents of your faith. And here's what he says in verse 18. He says, And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to craziness, just reckless living. What were these pagans doing? They were going down to the local bars and the local taverns and they were getting absolutely hammered, sloshed, right? But they were doing it in order to open themselves up to being possessed by the gods, or so they thought. And the result of getting hammered and being possessed by the gods is that they would ecstatically begin to sing these songs Uh, And as they did, they would uh, sort of give people what they thought was divine revelation. Of course, we know, according to Paul, that they were being demon-possessed. They were opening their spirits to devils, to forces of darkness. Of course they were. They didn't know that. And so when Paul says, don't get drunk in the local tavern, don't be caught tavern crooning with your former fellow friends who are pagans, but instead... Instead, so this is an analogy by contrast, be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another, so there's the plural context, is as we come together with one another, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and make music, making music with your heart to the Lord. That's celebratory and that's instructional. And giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. So this filling that he expects for the Christians is to be continuous. It's to be ongoing. It's to be in the context of the one another, the gathering, as we come together and as we sing to one another. Did you think of yourself during our our praise and worship time, our music time this morning, did you think of yourself as singing to each other. Usually when we sing songs that are not directly to God, but songs that are about God, you and I are affirming the truth of God to each other. We're saying he reigns above it all. Not you reign above it all, but he reigns above it all. I'm saying that to you. We're saying that to encourage one another and to instruct and exhort one another. So being filled with the Spirit can refer to the initial experience of being baptized and filled with the Spirit of God at salvation. Or it can describe the ongoing experience of living in the fullness of the Spirit's presence through regular corporate worship. Number three, let's talk about the sign. Speaking in tongues. What does that mean? What does that mean? Now I want to say this. The sign is not the gift. This is where people get mixed up. The sign is not the gift. The gift is the Holy Spirit. 
The promise of the Father and the promise of the Son is the Spirit's presence in your life. Is the Spirit's invading presence into your life to restore and transform you. And to make all things in your life new and like Christ. But what does the sign speaking in tongues, what does it signify in this passage? I think it is very unfortunate that this gift has become so controversial in the life of the church over the last century or so. I think that's really unfortunate. There's a real, there are two really good reasons why this gift is present in this text. It's a supernatural gift. And here's why. It's pra- it's, there's a practical reason. And then I'm going to tell you about the theological reason. And they both are super important. Let's talk about the nature of the gift. What is the nature of this gift? No one can teach you to speak in tongues. So in the first century, this wasn't like someone coming to the apostles and teaching them to speak other languages they had not learned. The nature of this gift is that it is spirit-inspired speech signifying cross-cultural mission. That is so critical. It is spirit-inspired speech which is a signpost to the disciples, to the apostles, of their own cross-cultural mission. I want to show you why that is. They were given a supernatural enablement to speak in languages they had not previously learned from all over the Roman Empire. And this is a powerful and appropriate sign to confirm the cross-cultural direction of their mission. Why would that be necessary for God to confirm that with the apostles? Because they were prone not to do this. As Jews, they were enculturated. They had grown up in a culture where they couldn't stand the sight of a Gentile. And they did not practice very much at all Gentile proselytization. Evangelism is unique to the Christian faith. Of all the faith systems in the history of the world, evangelism is really unique to the Christian faith as an ethic, as a central ethic. Missions is our deal. That's our thing. (laughs) That's how God has called us and commanded us and wired us. But the Jews, these apostles, were not wired that way. They were not wired that way. The book of Acts, all 28 chapters, are, is 30 years compressed into 28 short chapters. And it took them almost a decade to get out of Judea and to go to Samaria. It took them almost 15 years, 15 years, by Acts chapter 15, 15 years to acknowledge that Gentiles, yes, God is accepting the Gentiles. So the practical reason why God gave them this gift is to remind them of their cross-cultural mission. There could be no more appropriate supernatural gift than to give them the gift of speaking in other languages that they had not learned, foreign languages. To say to them, you are not called to stay here in Jerusalem and Judea, you're called to go out. So Luke mentions all kinds of spirit-inspired speech, not just speaking in tongues. Spirit-anointed and spirit-inspired speech in the book of Acts. Luke mentions speaking in unlearned languages, tongues, also prophetic preaching, spontaneous praise, predictive prophecy, boldness to testify in one's own language. These are either spirit-anointed or spirit-inspired gifts that permeate the book of Acts, and this is how the gospel message in that culture goes forward. And tongues is one of those kinds of inspired speech patterns. So it's practical significance. The story of the church progresses geographically in Jerusalem, Judea, 
and then Samaria, and then Greece and Rome. This gift shows up right at the frontiers of those geographical and cultural boundaries. So you have Acts chapter 2. The gift shows up right there at the first initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit to say to the disciples, you are called cross-culturally. Judea, Jerusalem, and Judea. They stay there seven, almost ten years before they move out of there. And then persecution comes into the life of the church and they are forced out. And what's the very next story? Philip in Samaria. And that's like Acts chapter, what? Acts chapter uh, 8. And so Philip is in Samaria and there uh, this gift is very strongly implied. That it is poured out at the, at the laying on the hands of the apostles to these Samaritans. And what is God doing? He's going from this concentric circle to the next one. And he's saying, see, I've called you cross-culturally. I've called you to go. And then the very next time we see this gift, it's Acts chapter 10. The household of Cornelius, the Roman centurion. He represents the government of Rome. And God is saying, I accept the Romans too. And then that gift is poured out on him and his household. Next time it appears, Acts chapter 19 with Ephesus, the Greeks, holy smokes. You know, these crazy wild Greeks. Yes, God not only accepts these mean, nasty Romans, these engineers, sorry engineers, but, uh, but he accepts these, these philosophers and poets. He accepts them too. That's Acts 19. It's poured out right there. So you see, geographically, it shows up at the frontiers of God pushing the gospel into the next group. And so its purpose is very practical for a Jew, a Jewish boy, a Jewish young guy who's out there preaching, who wants to stay tethered to Jerusalem and Judea, Jewish country where he's comfortable. And God has to say, every time he pours out this gift of the spirit on a new group of people, see, I've called you cross-culturally. Notice the languages. And this is a perfectly powerful and appropriate gift for just that. So the gift shows up right at the frontiers of the spirit's mission cross-culturally to signify to the apostles, keep going, keep going, get out there. But what's the theological significance? Well, it is a sign, listen, it is a sign of God's world writing and world unifying salvation. It is a sign of God's world writing and world unifying salvation. What do we mean by this. If you have your Bible, turn back to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11. Now, Genesis 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel, the city of Babylon, and the Tower of Babel. Babylon is probably the most ancient culture, uh, uh, civilized culture in the history of the world right, in world history. So here we go back to the oldest civilization recorded in the Bible, and they are building, what are they building? A ziggurat, right? They're building, they're building a pyramid. They're and what are they trying to do? They're trying to get to the clouds. And remember what we said about the clouds last week. Why do you want to go to the clouds if you live in the ancient Near East? Because you want to ascend to the powers and the thrones of heaven. That's what you want to do, right? So God thinks that they are, as fallen human beings, as fallen image bearers, they are false claimants on his throne. And so he has to throw this whole project that is unified into disarray. Now, the key to Acts chapter 2, in my view, is Genesis chapter 11. Because Genesis chapter 11 is a curse. 
And Acts chapter 2 unwinds the curse. I want to show you. At Babel, God fractured a single language into many, creating confusion. At Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit made it possible for many languages to be understood as one, creating unity. At Babel, language was used to promote a human agenda. Let us, let us make a name for ourselves. But at Jerusalem, the new language was used to announce the mighty works of God, Acts 2.11. At Babel, God scattered the people in judgment. He dispersed them. But in Jerusalem, he brings the dispersed Jews all together. And speaking in these languages, they hear one, one message. The wonders and the works and the glories of God. Now, I just want to show you just really quickly the contrasts, the parallels. In Babel, in Genesis 11, 1 and 6, They have one people in one language, but in Acts chapter 2, we start out with every nation divided by language and vocabulary. And Genesis 11, 4a, they are united to build a tower to heaven, to ascend to the clouds and the throne of God, the mounts of God. In Acts 1, 9, Christ has ascended into the clouds of heaven and is a legitimate claimant on the throne of God, right? Their purpose was for their fame and glory in 4b, And in Acts 7.55, here's what we learn. We learn that the whole project is for the fame and the glory of the ascended son, the exalted son. In Genesis 11.5, the Lord descended to see the tower. I love that phrase. He descended to see what the tower was about. But in Acts 2.1-4, the Spirit descends at Pentecost to fill everyone, all who believe. In Genesis 11.8-9, confusion of language and their understanding is lost. Is what happens in Acts 2, 7, 8. They have initial confusion and then understanding. You see what God is doing. And I think it's clear. This humanity that has been hopelessly disunified and fractured. God is now in Acts chapter 2 bringing us back together in the, under the lordship of the risen ascended son Christ. You see where I'm going? This is the only way. This is the only way that a human being can be unified with another human being at a deep and profound level. You want to see it? I'll show it to you. Because I know you want to see it. It's in Revelation 7. This is the end of the world. This is the end of the book. The end of the story. This is the grand finale. Here's what it looks like. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this, John says, I looked. And there was a vast multitude from every nation and every tribe and people and language. That word is glossa. That word is tongues. Every tongue which no one could number standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice all together, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne. And to the Lamb whom the scripture says is at the center of the throne. This is God's world-writing, world-unifying salvation. God's world-writing and world-unifying salvation. This sign that appears in this chapter has the pragmatic function of reminding the apostles of their cross-cultural mission. But it has the theological significance of reminding us that God has now reconstituted humanity has brought us together under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So let me give you a couple of application points you can take home. And the first one is, how's your environment? Just a question. 
How's your environment? The Spirit was poured out when their environment had been prepped and they were waiting for His coming. And they were faithful to wait for God to move and not move ahead of God. And they were faithful to do what they could do and let God do what they couldn't do. They were faithful to have a prayer meeting, which is what they're doing in Acts chapter 1. They're faithful to gather and listen to the teachings of Jesus. They're faithful to conduct business to replace Judas with Matthias. They're faithful to do what they can do as they wait obediently for what only God can do. Let me ask you, how's your environment? Is your environment conducive to the outpouring of the Spirit? Because God is sovereign. You can't, you can't force Him to move, but you can prepare yourself. God responds to environments that are conducive for His filling. If you're a skeptic and you're a non-believer... And I know that there are some here every Sunday morning. And I want to applaud you. I want to thank you for showing up, even though you don't believe this stuff that I'm talking about. You're sitting there now, and you're in the one environment, the best environment that you could possibly be in, to have the Spirit reveal the truth to your heart and warm your heart to it. Thank you for being here. Now, respond. <laughs> like, come to Jesus. It's time to come to Jesus. If you're a believer and you're sitting here and frankly your faith just feels dry, you don't remember when's the last time you actually experienced the filling of the Holy Spirit, let me tell you, you're in the best environment you can possibly be in, right here. Open your heart. This is the most important day of your week. This is the most important hour and a half in your schedule this week. It's the most important one because we are gathered as a fellowship, gathered with the saints, and this is where God manifests his outpoured presence. And so how's your environment? Number two, don't get conned by offers of false or shallow unity. Don't get conned by this. Now, listen to me. We are called to be civil. We are called to live peaceably and quietly and mind our own business so far as it is up to us, right? That's what the New Testament says. That's what it says. That's what Paul said. You and I are called to be peacemakers, not peacebreakers. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, not blessed are the troublemakers. You and I are called to be civil. We're called to find areas of commonality where we can. But all the calls this last week for unity and healing at a deep and vital level, I'm here to tell you, are never going to happen. Not apart from Jesus. Not apart from his lordship. You ever been suckered? <laughs> yeah, some of you are like, oh yeah. I, I mean, have you ever, I have friends who bought a house. They had a sham inspection. And then they, what they essentially bought was a money pit. A house they were going to put way more money in. Some of you are shaking your head like I've been there. Way more money in that house than that house would ever be worth. Have you ever bought a car? I used to be a car salesman, and I can tell you the number one anxiety that every buyer has, and I'm sure you would resonate with this, is that they're going to get took. They're going to be taken. They're going to be a, leave a sucker with a lemon. That's the number one anxiety that every buyer has. And, and, and 
when the person comes back, usually people who do uh, get suckered, they usually come back and all they can think about when they're sitting in front of the finance guy at the car dealership is that beautiful, shiny new car. And they're just not reading the fine print because later the bill comes due. And the payment is much higher than they remembered signing off to. And there's all kinds of things packed down into their deal that they don't remember talking about because they were just thinking of the promise of driving off with their shiny new car and not the fine print in the bottom of the contract. And folks, if the contract that our culture is trying to make with us is that we can have unity and healing so long as the cost is you not preaching the values of this gospel, we're not doing that. No deal. I'll tear up the contract. Because we are going to preach the values of this kingdom, of this cross, that accompany this cross. So let me tell you what they are. Every debate we are having in our culture right now is at this inflection point. It's not a debate about the nature of God. It's a debate about the nature of a human being. What is a human being? And who gets to define that? We think, as Christians, that God is the one who sovereignly gets to define it and decree it, and we agree with God, what he has said in his word. We're not mean, we're compassionate, we're merciful. If you're struggling, we're here for you, but we're not going to teach that a human being is anything what God says they are, other, but other than what God says they are. We're not going to do that. If you hold a biblical worldview of what God says a human being is, then you believe that a human being is made in the precious image of God. From the womb to the grave, they will be. That's what we believe. That's why we're pro-life. We're pro-life because we believe that every single individual, every single life matters to God. We also believe that God is the one who gets to define and decree what a proper sexual relationship is. Not you, not our culture. God is the one who gets to define that and decree that. And God has said an appropriate sexual relationship for my image bearers is male and female for life. In the context of marriage. And he says it from Genesis to Revelation, my friend. He says it all the way through the book. He has not rescinded it. So if the culture's cost, if the contract is, we can have peace and we can have unity so long as you don't preach the gospel and the values that are associated with the gospel, no deal. You agree with that? Okay, let's pray. On the day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago, God began the project of saving humanity and reunifying the human race under the lordship of Christ by invading our lives with his transforming presence. And God, right now as a congregation, we recognize that there can be no true, lasting, enduring, eternal unity apart from the saving work of Jesus. And God, we pray that you would save our culture that is darkened and headed to hell. And we ask that you would bring people to the saving knowledge of Jesus' world-writing, world-unifying salvation. Would you do it? And if you're an unbeliever and you're a skeptic and you're sitting here right now, I don't want to give you the margin of deciding tomorrow. 
I want you to decide right now because your eternal destiny is at stake. Will you right now stop messing around, come to faith? Don't walk out that door before you put your trust and your faith in Jesus of Nazareth. Would you right now confess that, like the rest of us, we have done this already, you're a sinner. You're a sinner. You've fallen from God's holy standard and God has done something about it. He has allowed his son to be condemned to death on a cross for your sake. Would you receive that sacrifice? And confess your trust that he has been resurrected from the dead on the third day. And the scripture says in Romans chapter 10 verse 9, you will be saved with that confession. Will you do it today? And if you're a believer here, my exhortation is to mind your environment. Are you regularly gathering with the church to be instructed through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to be filled with the glorious presence of the Lord? Let us not recoil at the supernatural signs that God puts in this passage to remind the church of its apostolic cross-cultural ministry and the direction that this ministry is pushing. Let us be reminded of it today that God is unwinding the curse of a deeply fractured humanity. In Jesus' name, amen.